This is Brett number one from Spokane, Washington. I've been best friends, best friends with Jesse Dollimer for 25 years, and I still wouldn't listen to that piece of shit show, I Doubt It with Dollimer. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Thalamore. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Episode 645 of I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, joined today by the lovely, the talented, the scholarly podcaster, Brittany Page, everybody. Do you remember when we started doing this show that when you t- used the word podcast, no one knew what that was? I still find that to be the case. You, you... I still get comments. I get emails and messages from YouTube listeners. Oopsies. I tried to adjust my mic and it made a noise. I thought it would be quiet. <laughs> Sorry. I, I still get li- listeners emails and messages that say, I love your podcasts on YouTube. Yeah, but 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 they know the word podcast. I'm oh, talking they know about the word. Yeah, yeah like yeah. in the beginning, you would say Oh yeah, we started a podcast and people would like uh-huh. yeah, they wouldn't even know what that meant. <laughs> right, like that was right. the first time they had heard that word. Yeah. And I think that that is going away. Many people are now aware podcasts exist, they're a thing, and they also could define them if asked. Now, yes, what you're saying is true that there are still people out there who don't really know what a podcast yeah, is. Yeah. And think your videos, for example, on YouTube are podcasts, yeah, which they're not. Th- they are not, no. I mean, <laughs> there is a technical definition of a podcast. What is the technical definition? Well, yeah, of course. Because I'm, I'm not course. sure about no, what well, it is. It is, it is um, some type of medium, usually audio, but it can be video, that is delivered over an RSS feed, a, a really simple syndication feed, which is like to a podcatcher. I see. So you can't... You can't do a live podcast. That's just by definition not something that's possible. Huh. Okay. It's not a live internet broadcast. That's not what a podcast is. Okay. A so... podcast by its very nature is pre-recorded and then delivered to people via a podcatcher or whatever. So when we have live streamed the show in the past on YouTube, that was not a podcast. Not technically, no, but we are a podcast, and that, that audio that we did deliver live over YouTube yeah. was then packaged and sent after editing mm-hmm. to a podcast over an RSS feed. <laughs> okay. Well, I was looking at some data oh, from- Data? Pew, 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 pew. It's not pew, from Pew. Pew, pew, oh. pew, pew, pew. Not from Pew Research Center. All right. From Edison Research and Triton Digital. Oh. And- all right. I'm <laughs> in, ready. I'm excited about in, podcast data. Okay. In 2016, 18% of Americans listened to podcasts at least monthly. Okay. 18%. That seems very low. Yeah. In 2016, not that long ago, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. In 2019, that rose to 27%. Hmm. Now, do you want to know what is it is projected to hit as of 2024 when Ivanka Trump is president? <laughs> 
<laughs> if we're living in hell. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Are you kidding me? Do you, are you going to guess? Uh, uh, no, I just love when you say things that I am not expecting uh, at all. Mm-hmm. I would say, so what is it now? 27%? 27% listen to podcasts at least monthly. So in four years, four, four and a half years, I would say... 52%. Ooh, you're just, you're trying to, <laughs> you're trying to increase our listenership. That's where your head's no, it's at. it's not that high. It's projected to hit 38%. 38%. So it went up by, it went up by nine and then it went up by 11. They're projecting 11% increase in the next four years. It went from 18% in 2016 to 27, to 27 in 2019. Not, 9%. And it is projected to hit 38% in 2024. Which is 11. Okay. Percent. <laughs> All right. Good times. <laughs> well, that's... um, I expected there to be more exponentialism. That's not a word. But, mm-hmm. you know, more more exponential growth than just, you know, a couple percent more of an increase yeah. over the next four years. Yeah. Well, it's growing. It's growing. And today there are 90 million monthly podcast listeners, and that's up from 58 million in 2016. So it is growing. Are you talking about in the United States or worldwide? That is United States consumers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a lot. I mean, that's a that's a that's a heavy percentage of uh, of Americans. Yeah. So the real reason that I wanted to talk about this up front is because I wanted to talk about Dark Waters, which is a movie, and I didn't want this to turn into a movie review podcast. So I wanted to talk about something else in the beginning, <laughs> rather so than you, Dark Waters. You, and now I think we've talked about this an appropriate amount of time you, you to have it me. not be a movie review podcast. And you, now we can talk about Dark Waters. Yeah. Why did you do that to me? I was all <laughs> raring to go about podcasts. Uh, and now you've, 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 you you've conned me into talking about well, the movie we just watched. Well, we can we can continue to talk about this because they actually also have data on the podcatchers, that's what they're called, right? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, that people use and obviously you know the most popular one. I don't know. I I, I use the Apple one. Yeah, that's the most that's what most people because use. Because it comes with your phone. Yeah, so yeah. 62.9% of podcast listeners use Apple Podcasts and it's free. Yeah, yes, yes. I think that plays a pretty important role. <laughs> I, I can't see myself paying for a podcatcher. Uh-huh. Because what 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 benefit, what what features are they going to offer me that are worth paying money for when, uh, I don't know. Anyway, I'd love to know what people th- say about that. Yeah, well, then you have Spotify, which 9.5% of podcast listeners use. Right, which is not just for podcasts. In fact, it's... That just became a thing mm-hmm. that it's podcasts. Yes, but those people are using it to listen to podcasts. Yeah. And then you have the remaining 27.5% of users, which are scattered among all these various different apps. And Stitcher is one we used to talk about quite often, and only 2% of podcast listeners are using Stitcher, which was pretty yeah. pretty surprising to me. When we first got in the game, listen to me, in the game, when oh we got into God. the podcast game, everybody. Dear Lord. When we, when we first started a podcast, you mm. really want it to be listened to by whomever. Right. And the reason I don't like Stitcher now is because they download our content and then deliver it separately. Oh. It doesn't count into our stats. I have to go separately to their website and look and see how many people listened. Hmm. They're not... Because a podcast... This is getting in the weeds and then we'll be done here. You're, you're downloading it from our website, from our server. You're just using 
um, Apple Podcast app or whatever as a vehicle to get to our website. You're still downloading it from us. Yeah. Anyway. And then Google Podcasts with 0.9%. Yeah. 0.9% well, of podcast listeners using What happens with that Google. is most, most people, they download a different podcatcher on their Google phone and they're not using the, the native app or whatever. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, we thank everybody for listening. Even if you're listening on Stitcher right now. Just know that, you know, they're not treating my content fairly. They also serve ads uh, on our content uh, um, on Stitcher. Our content. That's what I just said. You said our... it the second time, but the first time you did not. That's right. Hiccup. Not sure. But <laughs> anyway, proceed. Okay. Let's talk about Dark Waters. So we saw Dark Waters, which is a very, very important movie that we recommend everybody go see. Well, I won't speak for you. That I recommend everybody go see. I think you hated it, so we'll see what your take is. Are you fucking kidding me right now? Of course I'm kidding. I know that you liked it. I just don't want to speak for you. So Dark Waters is about a an attorney who represents corporate interests. That's what his that's what his deal is. Yeah, and specifically corporate chemical manufacturers right right and things take a turn when (laughs) a farmer from his hometown in west virginia reaches out to him for some help because he believes that his farm and his cows are being poisoned by, by something yeah and long story short he ends up taking on dupont very powerful organization. Yeah, massive employer in the state of West Virginia. Right. And it ends up being, I mean, a decades-long battle against this company. And the movie takes you through how difficult it was for him personally, the toll that it took on his health, the toll it took on him and his family. And there's a happy ending to the story, but it well, takes... It's a true story, so you know that it's going to end up being relatively happy. Yeah, yeah, and I say happy, I like paused a little bit before I said that because it is relatively. Mm-hmm. I mean... Well, I'm just indicating that we're not spoiling the movie because it's a fucking true story. Right. And <laughs> and the story is, yeah, they were poisoning people, DuPont. Yeah, okay. legit, straight up poisoning people. And it's very reminiscent of Aaron Brockovich. It, well, it's very reminiscent of every one of these movies that points out horrendous criminal activity of knowingly poisoning a population and trying to fucking cover it up. Right. And I, uh, this is something that I have come around on. And it's particularly when I would argue about GMOs. Now, I fully support GMOs. I don't want anyone to to think that what I'm about to say means that I harbor some sort of suspicion about the safety of GMOs yeah. or or whatever. But one of the things that I used to believe when I would argue about the safety of GMOs is that these corporations have the people's best interests in mind. Yeah. I don't necessarily believe that anymore. That doesn't take away from what I believe about the safety of GMOs because that's based on science, Mm -hmm. right? But something that I've changed my mind about is realizing that corporations can and oftentimes in the past have been up to nefarious activity, knowingly doing terrible things to people and continuing because they want to make a profit, and they are making a profit. There's always this argument that's kind of made, maybe not this specific argument, but maybe it's an argument I used to use, which is 
you know, if you go to, you know, you're eating a street food out on it by a vendor. And if there's a long line, you know, it's good. And also, you know, they're not in the business of poisoning their clientele because if you get sick, you're never going to eat there again. And if they make a bunch of people sick, they're never going to go there again. And I, and I used to kind of extrapolate that argument to corporations that they're not in the business of, of fucking you over because you're their customer base. It's a good, it's a symbiotic relationship they have with you. And that, that might be true of a street vendor with zero power and not having billions of dollars in reserve to, to fight legal battles and to cover up their nefarious activities. But with, that's exactly what it is with a corporation. They've got tons and tons of money. They're able to buy off governments. They're able to buy off state and local municipalities. They're able to wield their power as an employer over the economy of an entire state and sometimes country to do whatever the fuck they want to do. Doesn't matter what the effect is on the people. It's profits over everything. Yeah, I also read, I think it was an op-ed in the LA Times. I'm not, I'm not sure, but it was about the writer of the movie and how he wanted to do this movie because he feels like it's it's not just about the past it's about us in 2019 yeah and this is the quote from from the article quote it would be about us in 2019 about american communities and institutions co-opted by corporate power lulled into the belief that if problems exist someone else will fix them system failure and i think that that is very much what we fall into is, oh, someone else will worry about this. Someone else will take up the mantle and and do this. And luckily, this attorney, Rob... Balot, I think is... B-I-L-O-T, I think his last name is. Yeah, luckily, he took up the mantle and... I mean, in the face of overwhelming... Yeah, just, to, to call them insurmountable is just... Because you're taking on decades of work seemingly going nowhere. Yeah. They even show a scene where DuPont calls him up, the representative from DuPont that he's working with, um, and they say, okay, we've, uh, we're going to deliver all that discovery to you, all the documents that are related to the case. Um, so good luck with that. And then it just shows them like piling in boxes and boxes. Truckloads. Truckloads of of cardboard boxes filled with with documents. Yeah, just trying to bury him so that he feels unmotivated and decides it's not worth it. And luckily he he didn't yeah. he didn't say that. So, I think it's an important lesson that we can all benefit from watching on the screen. I'm glad that they made it. And it's nice that Mark Ruffalo starred in it cuz he's also a climate change activist. This is what he does like in his free time is yeah. is take part in helping raise awareness of these issues. Good movie. Yeah, really good. So go 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 check that out. Yeah. This episode of, of this edition of Reviewing Movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about something else because we're coming up on 2020, right? We are, yeah. I was going to say we're in 2020, but that is mere hours away, mm-hmm. 2020. Yes. It's weird when you put it like that. Mere hours away. It is hours away. It's the 28th. (laughs) We're 72 hours away, everybody. Yeah. So going to be 2020. And I read a fantastic article entitled White Christian America Ended in the 2010s. Hmm. 
and this is by Robert P. Jones, CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute. He wrote a book in 2016 called The End of White Christian America, and a lot of it is about, well, this decade and the major shifts that have happened demographically that have contributed to the rise of Donald Trump and securing the base of Donald Trump. Hmm. And so the central argument of of this article using data is that this country is no longer a dominant white Christian nation as of this decade. Hmm. So here are some numbers from Robert P. Jones. The percentage of white Christians in the general population had dropped from 53% to 47% between 2010 and 2014 alone. Now, at the end of the decade, only 42% of Americans identifying as white and Christian, representing a drop of 11 percentage points. Mm. In the world of demographic measurements, where changes typically occur at a glacial pace... This drop in self-identified white Christians, averaging 1.1 percentage points a year, is remarkable. Changes of this magnitude are large enough to see and feel at the local level as church roles shrink and white Christian institutions hold less sway in public space. I think part of that is, like, like remember how, obviously you remember, but how quickly gay marriage and gay rights became just absolutely fucking commonplace in the norm. Right. A lot of that has to do with when when there's like a there's like this sway the swing, the tsunami of once one person like a like a like a snowball effect where one person admits I'm okay with it, another person admits it, and then just it's like a domino effect. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing has happened with non-belief, with agnosticism, with nuns. N-O-N-E-S, yeah. <laughs> not N-U-N-S, but with nuns that it's okay. There there aren't the, the stigma's not there anymore to say, you know, I just don't know if I believe in, in, a, in a creator. I don't know if I believe in gods anymore. So it's become more acceptable. They see that there's the, the punishment, social stigma and punishment for it doesn't really exist, so I think that could be some of the 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 insane swing from one from one, you know, it's not a glacial movement anymore. Sometimes it's because of the acceptance. I'm rambling here, but I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, he talks about actually the LGBTQ issue and how that has been a large part of what has pushed young people and that's what you're talking about here, right? Young yeah. people moving out of religious spaces and joining the nuns. In yeah, that it's, that it's, not, it's not so much unacceptable anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not acceptable, but you're not going to pay for it socially if you say, eh, I don't know if I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to read two paragraphs from this because it's really the central point of this article. And I mean, as we move into 2020 and we're reflecting on the past few years, it's also reflection on the decade, right? Because we're yeah. ending a decade here. Yeah. Um, and I think that this central point really outlines not only what we've been facing, but when, what we're going to continue to face going into 2020 because this problem isn't being dealt with. Right. This problem. And I call it a problem in quotes because it's white people feeling fear and anxiety over no longer being the dominant group. Yeah. And they're having to wrestle with 
what is that going to look like? Well, I think <laughs> there there is somewhat of a justification for that because they look around and they say, huh, how, how what kind of a society did we make when we created a system where we were the dominant and everyone else was the minority? What was life like for uh, blacks and brown people in America mm-hmm. under a white dominant system? And they're like, oh, shit. It wasn't that great. Right. And then when they learn they're going to, when when we learn that we're going to be the minority, we naturally think, oh, fuck, roles are going to reverse. It's going to be terrible for white people, just as terrible as it was for others under our dominant system. And they're fucking scared. Yeah. Yeah. And I... And I don't think, I mean, you don't think that that fear is founded. You're just, you're trying to explain the anxiety and fear that they you feel. No, I don't think the fear is founded, but it it is, it's telling that they understand that it's not so great for minorities in America mm. for the past 50 fucking, or for the past forever. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. we can only kind of have a natural understanding of things in in like 50 year swings because that's, you know, our parents talked about it. We talk about it. We lived it. They lived it. So it's more nor like if you talk about the 1800s, it's it's kind of a in the ether. You know, it's a concept. It's not you're not really getting your brain around it. Yeah. So I'm just going to read his words because I feel like that's the best thing to do. Yeah. Uh, Robert P. Jones on Twitter. The white Christian population's anxieties about the future as they lose traction in the present have created a nostalgia for the past that has fueled support for Trump's Make America Great Again agenda. And not just among white evangelicals, solid majorities of each white Christian subgroup voted for Trump in 2016. And in the Public Religion Research Institute's most recent American Values survey, nearly 9 in 10, 88 percent, of white evangelicals and approximately two-thirds of both white mainland Protestants, 68%, and white Catholics, 65%, oppose impeaching and removing him from office. White Christian America's attraction to Trump has little to do with his personality or character. A slim majority, 52%, of white evangelicals, for example, say they wish his speech and behavior were more like previous presidents. And everything to do with something more important, their belief that making America great again necessarily entails restoring white Christian demographic and political dominance. Right. Yeah, it seems very accurate to me. So that and I I like that, right, that he's saying that their attraction to him has little to do with his personality or character and everything to do with the fact that they want that dominance back that they no longer have. Yeah. Right. Or they no longer feel they have. They no longer feel that they have. Yeah. Well, the numbers say that they don't, right? It's becoming an increasingly diverse nation. Yes. And there's no going back. So it's yeah, time. It, it's still dominant white. I mean, I know that in the next decade that's going to change, but it is still majority white country. Now, he's he's mixing in their Christianity, which does kind of bring the number down a little bit to 46 or 44 percent or whatever he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, he also adds in here that according to the U.S. Census Bureau, that the United States will no longer be majority white by 2045. Oh, oh, that it's that long. I thought it was going to be like a decade, but it's 20 years. Yeah. So so it's happening, though. Yeah, and it's, for it's, sure it's, it's not going to change. That's right. And what they're trying to do is double down and hang on to a past that is 
quickly not going to be in the presence. Yeah. Like we're moving away from that. It's going away. And there needs to be some like acceptance of that and figuring out what that means for you and moving along and starting to work together to like embrace the future that's coming and the reality yeah. of what's happening. Well, that's why it's so it is so str- no one predicted the rise of a Donald Trump because after the 2012 loss by Mitt Romney, the the, the Republican Party went through this period where they did this after action report kind of a thing. I don't know if they call it that, but I'm using military terms here. And they 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 did an assessment, and one of the things they came to, one of the, the major takeaways from that, that loss in 2012 was, we need to reach out to Latinos. We need to reach out to the, to the Hispanic community largely if we're going to be able to maintain any kind of political dominance in America, any kind of relevance as a political party. And instead of doing that, they tossed that report out after Trump took control of the Republican Party and they went the other fucking way, which it might work for him in an election or two, but ultimately it's not going to be the case and the Republican Party is going to have to either, I think the Republican Party that we knew is dead, but they're going to have to do something if they're going to continue to win elections because the demographics are rapidly and inexorably changing. Yeah, so I I thought this was important to talk about, like I said, as we reflect on the previous decade, as we think about what's what's to come and really knowing what what we're working with here. Right. That it isn't just about Donald Trump being the candidate who says what's on his mind and says what we've all been thinking. Uh, that nebulous phrase. Yeah. Um. It's about he calls it like a season. It's about the demographic shifts that have occurred and the fear and anxiety among white Christian Americans. Donald no Trump, baby. Uh, that the power and influence that they had and have is going away. Yeah. And who will 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 have that power and influence next? That terrifies them. Most certainly does. And here on this show, <laughs> we do not feel that those fears and anxieties are valid. And we hope that the people that are in those demographic cohorts grow up and start to see reality. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I'm terrified. Start to do some self-reflection. I am so beside myself with fear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I can see it. <laughs> I can see it in your face. <laughs> oh, I'm afraid now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I'm not afraid. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So anyway, I, that's awesome. Yeah. Robert P. Jones on Twitter? Yes. That. Why don't we get that guy on? Yeah, we should. Just mm-hmm. have a little talk with him. We a should little, do that. A little convo mm-hmm. with Robert P. Jones. Don't you love smart people? On Twitter. Yeah, I wish I knew some. Oh, you're like it for me. <laughs> nice, nice save, bro. <laughs> nice save. I thought it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, that was some weird shit. All right. Well, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You want to talk about Mormons? Let's talk. You know, this is going to be a different kind of show because we don't have a t- our, our all of our politics is kind of backloaded here. We're going to talk about impeachment and who's likely to vote for removal and what Republicans could possibly, maybe, but likely not. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, 
just the advocating for a fair trial in the Senate. Anyway, that'll be at the end. But let's do, let's talk about this story that we teased last episode about the, the, the I almost said the Republican Party, but it might as well be <laughs> the Mormon church diverting and hoarding a hundred billion dollars worth of tithing from church members mm-hmm. and not using it in the way they say they're going to instead using it as a rainy day slush fund of a tenth of a trillion dollars get your brain around that well and this was bombshell reporting from the washington post and it all came out because of an irs whistleblower a a mormon actually he filed a complaint and If the concerns that he lays out in this whistleblower complaint to the IRS that he like had to attest to the truthfulness and accuracy prior to filing under penalty of perjury, um, if they're true, this is pretty horrifying. Hello, my name is Lars Nielsen, and I am neither a podcaster nor a YouTuber, but I have something that I feel I should say to the world. With- Lars Nielsen went public after his brother, a former investment manager for the LDS Church, filed a whistleblower complaint to the IRS, claiming a tax-exempt fund is hoarding $100 billion. But off to the side, not in this pyramid, is Enzyme Peak Advisors. It is the, quote, reserve of the reserves. The Washington Post, which received a copy of the complaint, explains that the Ensign Reserve collects money tax-free with a nonprofit status. But of course, there's a catch, and that is that every dollar that goes into the organization must be permanently dedicated to a religious, educational, or charitable purpose. The Washington Post says according to the complaint, the church typically collects about $7 billion each year in contributions from members. However, the whistleblower feels they were misled by what the money was being used for. You're told that it stays in the ward and that it goes to, to feed and, and you know support members of your congregation, your local congregation. Colleen Payne-Dietz is a former LDS member and now hosts a podcast called Mormon Happy Hour. She didn't leave because of tithing, but hopes for the sake of other Mormons, the church becomes financially transparent. You know, if they're clear and publish, you know, all of their financials, then and everyone can see what they're doing with the money, then then people can decide whether they want to support them or not. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints released a statement tonight saying in part, the vast majority of these funds are used immediately to meet the needs of the growing church. They went on to say, over many years, a portion is methodically safeguarded through wise financial management and the building of a prudent reserve for the future. The church also says they welcome the opportunity to work with officials to address any other questions they may have. For now reporting in the studio, I'm Kim Powell for Arizona's Family. Well, part of that answer doesn't speak to the issue at all. It doesn't really answer it at all. The second half kind of speaks to the issue at hand, but we already know that the LDS church demands from its followers, its members, uh, and accepts $7 billion each year. Yeah. Okay. Also, it is more aggressive tithing requirement in Mormon church than in the Mormon church than in other denominations. Yeah, it's not a suggestion. They'll take your fucking temple recommend, which means you can't go to the temple. There's all kinds of of punitive actions that can be taken to disenfranchise you, to to uh, disfellowship you in whatever way. 
Yeah, it's not a suggestion. And like the church's comment there, yes, they do spend most of that money that they that they take from the members, but they still have a billion left over every year. Yeah. And like the whistleblower says, they're now funneling that money into their investment firm. And according to the whistleblower complaint, they have now amassed $100 billion. Yeah. So... A hundred... A hundred billion dollars is obvious. I mean, I'm I'm saying the obvious that it's a tremendous amount of money, but it is a tenth of a trillion dollars. That is that is wild. And then the, the reason some of this language they're using about uh, uh, a reserve for the future, this is language that's going to resonate. With LDS members. Mm -hmm. Because you might not know this about Mormons, but it is taught. Every Mormon I know who's active in the church has like a, a conspiratorial prepper basement where they hoard food, rice and beans for the end times. So using language like a reserve for the future, I think, is to play off of that particular idea that's taught among congregations mm -hmm. yeah i don't know it just seems to me knowing as much or as little as i do yeah about the faith yeah i i read a i read a really great article and we posted it to the facebook page a few days ago it was in the salt lake tribune and it was from atheist andrew seidel oh yeah he's the He's like the counsel for the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I honestly don't know a lot about who he is, yeah. but I liked the article because a lot of times prominent, and we've we've talked about this a lot on the show, but prominent figures in the atheist community are brash and yes. very aggressive and... Unsympathetic, I think. Yeah, they don't make the... They don't make the community look great, right? And The atheist community. Right. Yeah. And what I like about this article is that he encourages people to have compassion for the victims here. And he labels the victims as the members of the church. Who, the people who are given their money. Who are hardworking people. Many of them are likely struggling to support their families. Sure. But still maintaining this, this tithe that they are told that they must provide to the church and as as people are struggling to afford th their their life the church is saving all of this money 100 billion dollars yeah well, and so he's encouraging people and and he comments on like flippant memes of like i saved 10 percent by switching to atheism rather than being flippant about this issue he encourages compassion for the people that are being told under threat of excommunication or eternal torment that they must give this money yeah. despite how they might be struggling yeah, think about this think about not in times of thick but in times of lean during the great recession where unemployment shot up to above 10% Times economically were very rough. I mean, it was almost, if, if not for the measures that were taken by the Obama administration, we likely would just now be coming out of that economic downturn. Imagine that because times are lean, the church doesn't say, okay, I tell you what, not 10% now. How about 3% or 4%? 
Yeah, it's not it's not adjusted based on cost of living. Yeah, that's not what they do. They and they don't say, "Oh, you make $15,000 a year?" Yeah, you don't need to give us 10%. Yeah, there's no sliding scale. Oh, oh you make 15 million? Oh, you need to give us a little bit more. That's not a progressive tithing system. Mm-hmm. I- I'm going to play very brief audio here from a guy named Lynn G. Robbins, who is one of the the elders of the church, of the entire church. Like the there's like 70 people who are in this quorum of the they're in the know, they're in the the inner circle of the top echelon of the Mormon church. He gave every year, I mean, maybe every six months, they have a thing called General Conference, where men get up and speak to the congregants, to the men, those who have the priesthood, those who are lucky enough to have a penis in the Mormon church, get to get to take part in this. And he gave this talk, tithing is a commandment even for the destitute. This is the kind of rhetoric that is preached by the Mormon church at general conference. Lynn G. Robbins. In Charles Dickens' timeless classic, At Christmas Carol, Bob Cratchit hoped to spend Christmas Day with his family. If quite convenient, sir, he asked his employer, Mr. Scrooge, it's not convenient said Scrooge, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used. And yet, said Scrooge, you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. The clerk observed that it was only one day a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December, said Scrooge. For Scrooge, as with any selfish or natural man, sacrifice is never convenient. The natural man has a tendency to think only of himself, not only to place himself first, but rarely, if ever, place anyone else second, including God. For the natural man, sacrifice does not come naturally. He has an insatiable appetite for more. His so-called needs seem to always outpace his income so that having enough is forever out of reach, just as it was for the miser Scrooge. Because the natural man tends to hoard or consume everything, the Lord wisely commanded ancient Israel to sacrifice not the last and poorest of the flock, but the firstlings, not the leftovers of the field, but the first fruits. Genuine sacrifice has been a hallmark of the faithful from the beginning. Among those who do not sacrifice, there are two extremes. One is the rich gluttonous man who won't, and the other is the poor, destitute man who believes he can't. But how can you ask someone who is starving to eat less? Is there a level of poverty so low that sacrifice should not be expected, or a family so destitute that paying tithing should cease to be required? The Lord often teaches using extreme circumstances to illustrate a principle. The story of the widow of Seraphath is an example of extreme poverty used to teach the doctrine that mercy cannot rob sacrifice any more than it can rob justice. In fact, the truer measure of sacrifice isn't so much what one gives to sacrifice as what one sacrifices to give. Faith isn't tested so much when the cupboard is full as when it is bare. In these defining moments, the crisis doesn't create one's character. It reveals it. It The crisis is the test. 
it reveals it. Indicating that poor people who don't want to tithe because their cupboard is bare, it really speaks to their character. However, the billionaire in the church, the mil- the multimillionaire, isn't required to give more, isn't required to truly sacrifice. It's 10% across the board. So, like you just said, Brittany, really, there should be some compassion for your everyday hard-working LDS church member who is giving 10% of what they earn. Mm-hmm. You know, if you make $50,000 and you're required to give 5000 of that to the church... It's different than if you make 50 million and the amount that you give doesn't take away from your livelihood, from eating and feeding your children and clothing and putting gas in your car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're taking that. And then as they, he says, the natural man has a tendency to hoard mm-hmm. as they hoard a tenth of a trillion dollars. Right. And and you were right, actually, uh, according to the whistleblower complaint um, in Signs President, the the organization that's holding all of the money or that is alleged to be holding all of the money, the investment firm, uh, according to the whistleblower complaints, the president of that investment firm has told other people that the amassed funds would be used in the event of, of the second coming of Christ. Yeah. So you were correct yeah. in, in your assessment I there. I didn't know that, but that just rings pretty true for what I know about Mormonism. Yeah. And, Andrew Seidel actually takes takes you through an interesting exercise in this article. He says that the LDS church could refuse all tithes this year and still cover its annual operating costs without noticing the dip. It could then give $3,000 to every single Mormon on earth, there are 15 million, and still have about 50 billion left. The church could do all of that and donate $10 million to every single one of Utah's public schools, and it would still have a $38 billion amount left. Wow. Yeah. That is, they're hoarding it for the end times, everybody. I mean, think about it. Think about it. It's, it's similar to what we were talking about with Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer on the previous episode yeah. about what, just think of how much money is being wasted by people who could be doing so much good with it, yeah. right? Well, <laughs> and isn't that what churches do? You always hear people say, and there are people in the atheist community that that do not want churches to be tax exempt, right? There's a movement to take tax exemption away from churches. And this is kind of an argument to support that, absolutely right? Absolutely it is. Where, yes, you are tax exempt because you're a charitable organization. You're supposed to exist to in in large part help alleviate some of the suffering of other people right you're out there in the world to do good yeah. so you're not punished with taxes <laughs> so you can you can spend your time doing good right but if you're just going to be like funneling that money and to your investment hundreds firm, of businesses yeah, which the church does yeah then this is starting to seem inconsistent it's a profit model yeah and that that doesn't seem like yeah. like you're existing to funnel all that money to charity. The right? other the other thing here that we're really not even talking about is the fact that what the fuck do you think the dollar, a paper dollar, it's going to be worth in the end times, Mormon Church? Really? Well, just in case, you never know. We're in the we're in the throes of the tribulation, and you think a fucking dollar? Ah, it's worth a bunch of money. No, fiat money's not going to be worth a fucking thing in the end times, quote unquote. You bunch of goddamn idiots. Well, Jesse, Jesse, 
You don't know what the end times look like. I know what they look like. <laughs> oh, I... Okay. The views and opinions expressed by Jesse Dollamore are solely those of Jesse Dollamore and do not reflect the views and opinions of Brittany Page, who is a far superior person and much more measured and reasonable in her views and analysis. That's because you're claiming to know what the end times no, are like. because they're a bunch of shysty fucks, that's why. All right. Maybe I should have played it after I said that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew what was coming. I knew what I might say. Yeah, well... To reiterate, we appreciate Andrew Seidel's compassion toward the members of the LDS Church, and I think it was an important article for people to read. So we did post that on the Facebook page. If you're interested in reading it, you can go check that out. And you should follow us on all social media, by the way. Let's do a little pitch here. Uh, at Dollamore, at Brittany E. Page, and at I Doubt It Podcast. Yes. Yeah. That's a good time. All right, let's keep this. Let's keep the news cycle in the Pacific Northwest, everybody. Let's talk about <laughs> Matt Shea from Spokane, Washington. Oh, God. This fucking white nationalist freak show mm-hmm. who it, it is now the, the case has been forwarded on for investigation by the FBI to the FBI by the Washington state uh, legislature. Did you say who he is? He's a Washington state representative mm-hmm. in the state house. Mm hmm. Representing, I believe, Washington's fourth or seventh district, what, whichever one is Spokane, Washington, all the way to the border of Idaho. Right. What's what's unfortunate about this is people who live in eastern Washington and northern Idaho <laughs> have, for a long time, tried to like separate themselves from the white supremacy that existed there right that, that, that existed not just in ideology but in physical encampments yeah well you had the ruby ridge standoff in in 1992 which was national news and really shined a light on the white supremacy that existed in northern idaho and then you also had aryan nations which was a a compound a for f- a physical compound right for white supremacists to meet where they had the world congress every year and, and Brittany may or may not have been dragged there by her parents as a child. Yeah, for the for the new listeners that maybe haven't heard, um, yeah, that's why my family moved us from California to Idaho when I was like five, is so that we could be closer to Aryan nations. And yeah, I, I my parents did take me there, and I saw the cross lightings, which is when the crosses are on fire, and the the whole thing. Yeah, so. you, you know how you respect the symbol of Christianity, you, you fucking burn it to the ground. Well, that's why they call it a cross <laughs> lighting yeah. and not a cross torching. Well, that's why they say that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, why, that's why they they just do a little shift in terminology that's there. Right, mm-hmm, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So anyway, uh this is a prevalent movement in 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 the northwest of 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 the country. In that particular Moses Lake, Hayden Lake kind of area. Well, it was, and that's what's so upsetting about this that's guy, right. Matt yeah, Shea. I, let, let me correct that. It it was. Is he's a far-right Washington lawmaker who has ties to white supremacist groups, and this, this area has tried so hard to distance themselves from that movement, and then here he sh- comes. And he is finding himself in trouble. The front page of the Seattle Times, a residents of Washington state woke up to this morning. Quote, inquiry finds state lawmaker engaged in domestic terrorism. That's a pretty memorable headline. Probably want to read that article. A 108 page report commissioned by the Washington State House of Representatives found that State Representative Matt Shea had been involved in not one, not two, but three armed conflicts against the U.S. government. 
Starting in 2014 with a standoff between rancher Cliven Bundy and the Bureau of Land Management Workers in Nevada, the report found that Matt Shea put out a social media call for militia members that resulted in, quote, turnout of approximately 1,500 armed militia members. And fast forward to 2015, Idaho. Veterans affairs workers were headed to the home of a veteran deemed ineligible to purchase firearms by a healthcare professional. And the report found that Shea participated in an operation that, quote, resulted in the use of armed militia members who blocked access to the veteran's home and prevented the lawful retrieval of the guns. And in 2016, when Cliven Bundy's son, Eamon, led the takeover of an Oregon wildlife refuge, Matt Shea quoted, quote, created a detailed military-styled operation plan entitled Operation Cold Reality. But here's the thing. Uh, Shea's extreme ideology has been on full display for years now. Just last year, he admitted to authoring an absolutely crazy document titled Biblical Basis for War, which is basically a manifesto for Christian holy war. Quote, if they do not yield, kill all males. When that document came to light, Matt Shea said it was just a summary of sermons on war in the Bible. No big deal. But that is not how the Republican sheriff of Spokane County described the document. Quote, it is a how-to manual consistent with the ideology and operating philosophy of the Christian identity Aryan, Aryan nations movement. Now, despite the fact that Matt Shea's views are well known, it was not until last night when that report was released that Washington state Republicans decided to finally cut ties with Shea calling on him to resign. Better late than never, I guess. And I guess all of this really fits with the whole movement, right? The white power movement. And Kathleen Ballou would prefer that people use that that term to refer to white supremacists, white nationalists, the white power movement. And it certainly sounds like everything that they just characterized in that report is what that is, right? The, yeah. Including the religious... Christian faction, right? Well, the biblical basis for war thing, uh, this, this report, this operational manifesto, this manual that he wrote, um, in it he talked about if someone supports gay rights, they need to be murdered. That's what that's what he postulated. This guy is not like a normal politician. He is an extreme nutter butter who is allying himself with militia ding-dongs dangerous people who take over government encampments and posts and and try to uh, exert their force and power over the United States government who are trying to keep dangerous people from owning weapons. Yeah. Which again all fits with the yes. white power movement. Absolutely. Because that's that's what their shared kind of philosophy is, right? Um suspicion of the government, yeah. conspiratorial thinking about the government protection from the government and i mean it's pretty remarkable that he was in his position having participated in acts of domestic terrorism against the federal government and it's just now coming out well it's the the he, here's here's it's a great participated point. in plans yeah, it's a great point the, the fact that republicans under donald trump feel emboldened to act like this. I'm sure this guy is a big Trump supporter while simultaneously acting as though the government is the evil that needs to be eradicated, that needs to be risen up against in an armed rebellion. 
it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but they're covering for this guy until they can't any longer. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party in Washington. Yeah. And he's Jay Inslee. You remember the Washington governor that was running yes. for president? I don't think he is anymore, right? No, he is not. Yeah. He is calling on him to resign. This guy, Shay, is only communicating through his personal Facebook page or his his Facebook page. I don't know if it's pers- personal yeah. one. Social media. Yeah. And he is encouraging people to watch his decision making from his page, whatever. Uh. But he went on this radio like a, show. Like a fucking mini Trump. Yeah, he went on this radio show and defended himself. And this is what he said, quote, there's a few of us that are standing in the gap. Trump is one of them. It's not yeah, about him. Go. It's there not about me. It's about all of us. They're attacking the values that really make America great. And that's really what this is all about. I've got audio of this fucking asshole. Listen to this at a, at a group of supporters and he is advocating for armed rebellion. There, there's, I mean, it is it is remarkable that an elected official in the United States in 2019 can get away with, can still maintain his power talking like this. I want to talk tonight about a simple idea that may make you cringe a little at first. And that idea is that liberty must be kept by force. I gotta tell you something, the, the forces of communism, and they, and by the way, please let's not argue that point anymore, they are communists, okay? Think about that for a second. We're supposed to be the beacon of freedom, right? We're supposed to be the beacon of Christianity, right? But instead, no, we're, we're headed in the wrong direction. And the fact of the matter is that it's because of compromise. And it's not knowing that the communists are training, they're planning, they're organizing, and they're lying in wait. Armed rebellion is what he's advocating for right there. Mm -hmm. And there's another section of this audio that I'm not going to play that is someone who got up after him and talked about how many of you fired your 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 AR-15 in, in the first uh, sh- shots fired in this war mm-hmm. against and he's like talking about Antifa. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're advocating for killing. They're advocating for armed violence against other Americans. And this guy is a representative of the Spokane Valley. He lives miles away from our. Some of our best friends. Yeah. Well, and in that report, it talks about how he was involved in training young people to fight a holy war and that he created a pamphlet that advocated replacing the government with a theocracy and, quote, the killing of all males who do not agree. Yes. So this is this is fucking um, what's the Hulu show? Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. That, that is what he's advocating for. Maybe not all the sexual stuff. But certainly a theocratic government that is run by his particular interpretation, one of thousands, his particular interpretation of the Bible. And the people who he is he is partnering with in this are maybe a different denomination of Christianity, but Ammon Bundy and those ding-dongs who took over the, 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 the wildlife reserve down there. Right. 
are up there for us. Mm-hmm. They're Mormon. They're Mormon separatists. They're also the same kind of people who are giving their money to the church, more fundamentalist types, who also believe in this end times doomsday kind of a thing. Right. And really, it is my goal for 2020 to get Kathleen Ballou on the show to talk about her book about the white power movement. Because Everybody should be tweeting at her to come on the show. She really, you need to follow her on Twitter because this is actually where we heard about this guy. And I want everyone that's listening right now to stop and think... Had you heard about this story before right now? Had you heard about this guy before right now? And if not, think about how that is alarming that the national news isn't covering (laughs) that this guy is an elected state senator who has participated in acts of domestic terrorism against the federal government. It is being covered, but not nearly wide enough. No, no. And I, like I just said, I didn't hear about it until she tweeted about it. And this is really her area, right? Covering, covering issues related to the white power movement. And in, in the article, in the LA times article, they, they say that he's a part of the Patriot movement. And that really is a term. Yeah, that's right. According to even Kathleen blue, who's an expert in this area. That just means the white power movement. And people often get confused. They're like, okay, wait, you're talking about like Christians and then you're talking about white supremacy. Like, did those two things go together? And the answer is yes. Um, Absolutely, they go together. In fact, I have pictures of my parents standing out in front of Aryan Nations in front of the compound when we went there. It says whites only. Church of Jesus Christ. It's a big sign, like a like a warning sign, like who's allowed in, right? Right. It's next to, it says non-Aryans, and then there's like a circle with a line through it, yeah. right? Like non-Aryans are not allowed here. And then it says whites only, Church of Jesus Christ, Christian Aryan nations. Yes. They believe that the Bible sets up a system of segregation among nations, segregation by race, and that... You can't commingle the races, and that's the way that God intended. The biblical God, the same one, if you're a Christian, that you believe in, and the same Bible that you read, they have used to justify their insipid, hurtful, dangerous ideology. Well, it's just a continuation of the scenes that you saw in 12 Years a Slave. It's exactly right. But... Yeah, so people often think those two things don't fit together. They do in the white power movement. So, like I said, it's one of my goals to get her on. I would love to to talk to her more in depth so that we can we can know a lot more about this than we already do. That would be great. So, extra kudos, extra good vibes for those of you who tweet Kathleen Ballou. Yes. Whose Twitter account is... Uh, At Kathleen underscore Ballou. That's B-E-L-E-W. Okay, B-E-L-E-W. Yeah. I wrote B-I on my paper so it's good that we spelled it because i spelled it wrong you did kathleen b-e-l-e-w yes remember extra points yep i'm gonna be doling out the extra points and believe me we are keeping an excel spreadsheet of those points (laughs) so if you want to be at the top of that spreadsheet that is right hop to it all right finally a mid-roll at an hour what's it's been an hour yeah we're (laughs) sometimes i really enjoy doing the show We're back in the saddle again, baby. I just like talking about important things. Yeah. You know, sometimes well, it's nice to not talk about Donald Trump. And Well, I tell you what, let's not do that this time. We've talked a little bit smattering in, but let's skip this and we'll push it. We'll push this impeachment stuff until next time. I don't have a problem doing that. Okay. 
It's a little teaser, a little, a little, a little, a little tease for the audience. Okay, and we'll save another sh- uh, article that I really want to talk about for next time as well. All right, we won't even have a democracy, but I think we do have. Uh, let's do the mid roll at the end to talk about the supporter who upped their pledge. Support for I Doubt It with Dollamore comes from generous, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners like you by way of Patreon. Your support on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month helps keep the show going and move the conversation forward one podcast at a time. If you would like to join the ever-growing family of supporters, please visit patreon.com slash idoubtitwithdollamore. Mendy. Mendy. Thank you so much for increasing your pledge, Mendy. I I have to let you know, and I'm sure that you do, because I'm sure that this was a, a calculation that you made. You will be able to join us for our next video chats. Yes, yes. that's right. Um, in a certain tier, right, on Patreon, you are able to join us every month for video chats through Zoom. It's free to you. There's no additional cost, right? It's just a benefit that you get as a result of supporting us on Patreon. And what we do is we choose a date. I actually sent them out yesterday because typically we have them at the end of every month the fr- the last friday and saturday of every month but christmas fucked everything up it really did <laughs> so we're moving the december hangouts to next weekend which will be friday january 3rd and saturday january 4th and you you get a link to join the call at the specified time and you just click it and you join the video chat. And it's like a Google Hangout. It's not like a, a YouTube live stream where you're chatting and we're talking. It's face to face. You know, if you want to call me a jackass right to my face hole, yeah. you can do it because yep. it's live. It is. <laughs> what an incentive. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always a really fun time. It's a nice way to just chat with the community of supporters that we have and people develop friendships with each other through that as well. So that's it's, really nice. It's something that I really take pride in that there has been a community that's that's grown up around the show. Yeah. That a lot of people who who are Facebook friends with us, I see also that they're Facebook friends with other people from the show. It really is. It's a, a network, a connection. Absolutely. So anyway, there are other ways to support the show, not just by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, that particular podcast catcher, which is an awesome way to not just support the show, but help the show to grow. We would really, really ask you to do that. That would be very helpful. But also, you can make Jeff Bezos an even wealthier man by going to Amazon. Let's put it this way. If you're going to go there anyway... Why not take a little bit of money out of his pocket and put it into ours by going to dollamore.com slash Amazon. That'll redirect you to Amazon. Anything you purchase then after that visit will, will, will give us a little bit of a commission. We don't advocate that you shop on Amazon. Sometimes it's almost unavoidable though. And if you're going to do that, dollamore.com slash Amazon. Anyway, that's going to be it for today. We love you guys. We appreciate you. We we welcome your feedback. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always take out your smartphone and email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. We welcome and look forward to your feedback, to your questions, to your comments, to your helping us move the conversation forward. Until next time, for Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been 
I doubt. As of 2024, when Ivanka Trump is president. <laughs> <laughs>